The, the genesis of, of my interest in climate really came from the fact that I was a military guy. Um, and so I spent some time in the Pentagon uh, in sort of the 2005, 2007 timeframe. And I guess it's one of the things, you know, as, as we talk about the politicization or whatever the word is of, of climate change, we don't talk about that, you know, the DOD has identified climate change as the number one long-term national security threat um, for the better part of 25 years. And so when I was in the Pentagon, this was something that was talked about routinely as, as this being a huge challenge and something that we need to prepare for and something that we needed sort of all tools to be focused on solving. And so that's what initially sort of sparked it for me um, and thinking about, you know, how I could be helpful. Um, and so what that ultimately led to is me and my best friend from growing up uh, went back and worked at a small standby generator company that his dad owned in northern New Jersey. And our original goal was to transform that into a co-generation company, right? We looked at sort of the skill set that that company had working with rotating equipment and things like that um, and said, okay, um, if you guys have a really good standby generator business, there's this opportunity with co-generation, which is a really efficient way to use natural gas um, to reduce CO2 emissions. And we, so, so we started doing that in sort of the 2009, 2010 timeframe. And then I think the second sort of inflection point for us was Superstorm Sandy. So we were based kind of right in the heart of where Superstorm Sandy did its worst damage. Um, you know, we saw the impact that had on the community, the employees at our company, um, you know, just the, the infrastructure around us. And it became very, very clear that, you know, we had to go faster and we had to think bigger about how to do this. And so... Um, ultimately, um, that wasn't going to work out, uh, inside, uh, our old company. Um, at the time we were, we were owned by a big British utility and they were kind of focused on, on what they wanted to do and, uh, weren't exactly thrilled about the amount of time we were spending on R and D. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a mutual, mutual way, we ended up leaving and starting scale and, and really, you know, the genesis of scale was, um, microgrids need to be built around solar storage systems, right? Um, we have to move past uh, natural gases, you know, a bridge fuel is what it was, it was called at the time, um, and really start building these systems as close to net zero as we can. Um, and so that's sort of what began our journey in 2015. And we've been working towards that, that destination um, ever since. And so that's kind of, you know, how we got started. I imagine whenever you're in conversations like this, there might be a little bit of confusion around, oh yeah, we're all, we're going to do solar or they misconfuse, they, they, they confuse what exactly scale is all about with just a simple solar installation. But you're talking about yeah. this on a higher level where you're actually talking about probably risk mitigation and independence and things like that. What's the difference between someone with like a traditional solar installation with what you're talking about with scale? Yeah. So um, when you think about it at sort of the highest level, right, there are three reasons that people usually think about distributed energy as an asset class. The first reason is economics, right? There are a lot of opportunities, depending on where you are in the country, um, to deploy distributed energy systems that can help you reduce your utility bills. Uh, the second reason is obviously sustainability. Um, you know, whether that's an individual goal or part of sort of a broader ESG strategy, reducing scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions is a big target for a lot of companies. And then the third reason is resilience, right? And 
The fact is that the U.S. electric grid is becoming less reliable um, as extreme weather events and cyber attacks and things like that get worse and worse and worse. Um, and so generally speaking, when you talk about traditional solar projects, they help you on two of those fronts. They help you with your ESG or your sustainability goals, and they help you in certain areas of the country with economics. But most solar systems are not able to island when the grid loses power. Um, and so if you want to be able to improve resilience as well, reliability, resilience, um, it actually make, makes the system that you have to build uh, exponentially more complicated. And so that's when you start talking about, OK, you know, from a switchgear and a control standpoint, we have to have the right equipment, uh, both on the hardware and the software side to be able to island the facility when the grid goes out. Um, typically, that means you have to pair uh, solar with uh, battery storage or some form of, of storage uh, to make sure that you can load balance behind the meter. And then oftentimes there's a role for a dispatchable generator as well. Um, so you can get that sort of longer duration resilience in the face of, you know, multi-day, multi-week outages. Um, and so that's really what we specialize in, right? When we're looking for customers and customers are looking for us, it's really folks that want the best blend of all three of those values. And uh, I think that's what we've gotten pretty good at building in the commercial and industrial sector. Yeah. I'm guessing there's certain industries where the use case or the value prop here is really strong. I'm, I'm thinking maybe healthcare, grocery, that type of thing. Where, where are some of the industries where you're seeing the maybe early adopters to this or the most kind of demand for this type of solution? Yeah, so it's a it's a quickly changing landscape, right? But I think the way we think about it is if you're a mission critical facility, then we want to talk to you, right? And I think the difference is, you know, traditionally mission critical facilities, you know, the government de definition of mission critical facilities has been pretty narrow, you know, focused on healthcare, first responders, data centers, things like that. Um, but in reality, a lot of companies view themselves as mission critical enterprises, even if they're not specifically classified as such, right? So you start talking about, you know, uh, grocery stores is a really good example where, um, you know, they really see themselves as uh, a hub of the community, you know, when there's an outage or when there's a natural disaster or something like that, they wanna make sure the lights are on so they can continue to ser serve their customers. Um, we're doing a lot of work in the agriculture space right now. Um, similar sort of vibe, right? Where even if the lights go out, we got to keep food moving, right? Um, and so agriculture has become a, a big industry for us. Um, and then, you know, I think increasingly we're talking to a lot of logistics companies, right? So you think about, you know, the Amazon, UPS, FedExes of the world, right? Um, as we've gone, and I think COVID really, you know, precipitated this, we could talk more about that. But as we've, you know, sort of transitioned to being more of an e-commerce type society, um, people really rely on those services uh, to deliver what they ordered on time, uh, whether there's an outage or not, whether there's an extreme weather event or not. Um, and so increasingly, I think those types of logistics companies are, are folks that are interested in the types of technologies that we build. Um, so it's a pretty broad swath of the, the commercial and industrial space at this point. Um, but I think generally speaking, if you're a facility that thinks of yourself as a mission critical enterprise, um, then this is the type of technology you should at least be considering. I'm guessing there are uh, some groups that have installed this and they already had 
sort of an ability to sustain themselves, but it was with through different sources. And then there's probably some who are just now kind of realizing we have to do this from a business standpoint. This is going to be our first installation of a solution like this. Is it, is it both of those cases? Yeah. Is there one more than the other? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the challenges in the space today is that when you think about those three, you know, values, when you think about sustainability, economics, and resilience, a lot of times those challenges are dealt with by different divisions of an organization, right? So the people that are focused on sustainability aren't necessarily the same folks that are focused on reliability and resilience. And I think, you know, over the past, I don't know, five years, right, um, there's really been uh, momentum, uh, I think, throughout the economy to say, okay, look, from an ESG perspective, we need to be thinking about this, all of this stuff, not in silos, but comprehensively. And um, that's really precipitated a lot of change, right? And so I think, you know, the average customer that we talk to now um, it's probably not their first time that they're thinking of any of those value streams as independent um, entities, but a lot of times it's the first time is they're, they're thinking about it comprehensively. And so how do we get the reliability and resilience that we need, but do so in the most sustainable and the most economically viable way? And that's really where we come in. And I think, uh, you know, we're pretty good at helping customers think through uh, you know, how to develop and, and deploy a system that can help them achieve, you know, all three of those things. Yeah, uh, it's ironic timing. I literally had just an hour ago, uh, we bought a new house last year, we got solar installed oh, in the congrats. house. And I, we literally just flipped the switch uh, like an hour ago. But one of the questions I had whenever I was going through this from a, you know, residential standpoint was payback period, right? Like I wanted yep. to know, can can this happen in seven and eight years? And it could, I'm like, we'll, we'll be here for sure, that's an that's an easy decision for us. Businesses should be thinking long term, but I'm also thinking they're they want to know what that payback period is. Is it similar uh, for them and for most of these installations, or what? What does that conversation look like? Yeah, so um, I, I I think you know the the short answer to your question is especially when you deal with some of the more complex systems in the CNI space, uh, the economic and financial impact of building a project like this is very, very complicated. Um, so, you know, simple payback is a good metric to look at at sort of a high level, but then you layer in things like, you know, investment tax credits and, you know, state mm -hmm. grants um, and different utility tariffs and all that kind of stuff. And this can get really, really complicated very quickly. And so I think that's been a real barrier in the microgrid industry for a long time, right? Which is, you know, people like the idea of this technology, but when it comes to actually figuring out the economics, uh, it's very, very challenging. And, and look, most of the customers that we work with don't look at generating power as a core, you know, business, uh, you know, core part of their business. It's not a core competency. And so I think there's a lot of hesitancy to, you know, deploy 10, 15, $20 million against the system and keep that on your balance sheet. Um, and so for us, right, the answer to that was we built an energy as a service company. And so the way we do the majority of our projects right now is we finance them and we have our own essentially private equity fund that we run to finance our projects um, that I can talk a little bit more about. But the basic value that we bring to customers is we have a method by which they can 
deploy these systems with zero money down, and then essentially pay for the power, similar to the way PPAs work in the solar industry, um, as the system continues to produce. And what that means for our customers is they don't have to think about the nuanced economics. Um, they don't have to figure out how to monetize tax credits or apply for grants or do any of that stuff. We do all that stuff behind the scenes. Um, and so they don't have to take that type of performance risk. And uh, I think that really opens up a whole new swath of the market that was interested in this stuff, but wasn't willing to pull the trigger. Um, and that's really been a key part of us, you know, building a business that can grow and scale. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, it seems like you're offering them less risk on two fronts. One is the independence that comes along with the solution. Then two is if they finance it in this way, uh, you basically assumed the risk and the complications that they don't have to fully understand. Like they can stick to their core business. They don't have to front a lot of money to do it. And it, I mean, it almost seems like it sells itself at that point. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, and, and, and look, I think um, that's probably the biggest barrier to deploying uh, these types of systems more broadly is just skepticism. Right. Mm -hmm. And so when I go in and talk to a customer and I say, look, I can build this system for you. It's not going to cost you anything up front. It's going to save you money on day one. It's going to you know, help you achieve your ESG goals and it's going to improve your operational resilience. It kind of sounds too good to be true. Right. And so I think, you know, as more and more of these systems get deployed and there's more and more reference cases and we have more and more customers that our future customers can call and, you know, hear that, yeah, this actually works. Um, yeah, it's becoming easier and easier to get the, those those types of deals done. Um, but that is what the opportunity in the market is right now. Right. I think for a lot of customers, you don't really have to make a huge sacrifice in order to benefit from this type of technology. You just have to partner with a company like ours um, that can come in and sort of work out all the details for you. And then, yeah, you can get those benefits, right? And I think for most of our customers, um, they're very, very, very happy with the results um, once the system gets commissioned. Now, look, I think the goal for us and, and the goal for everyone in our industry is trying to make that process, that customer acquisition process simpler, right? Because I think the biggest barrier right now is it still takes a lot of time to kind of figure out how all this stuff works, to get comfortable with the different mechanisms and the contracts and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, look, there aren't a lot of like C-suite people in the grocery store industry who have, you know, an extra 100, 200 hours a year to work on a project like this. And so ultimately for us, the goal is to try to make you know, what we do today as simple for the customer to acquire as possible. And, um, and look, I think that's a journey, not a destination. Um, but it's something that, you know, we think about every day. And, um, you know, that's really where we're trying to innovate as quickly as possible, you know, sort of on the business model innovation side of things, to make sure that not only are we delivering a value proposition post commissioning that makes our customers really, really happy, but the process to get there is as simple and streamlined as possible. Yeah. What are some of the misconceptions that you're running into when you're maybe early on in conversations? Is there something that you have run across multiple times or kind of wish that you could on, talk about it on a podcast and people are like, oh, okay, got that. Yeah. Um, so look, I, I, I think, you know, when you start at the high level, um, there are a ton of misconceptions about the role that renewable energy can play, um, especially in behind the meter applications, right? 
And I think, you know, the, the, the most annoying probable, probably, um, you know, sort sort of narrative that's out there, right, is that solar is unreliable, right? Like it only works when the sun shines. That was true 10 years ago. Um, we've made a lot of progress since then, right? And I think really the av- evolution of uh, battery energy storage systems has helped solve a lot of those problems. And, you know, the political discourse hasn't really kept up with the technical evolution. So I think, you know, a lot of our customers, when we have those first, you know, conversations, um, are pretty skeptical that you can use a, a system that's based around solar um, to provide reliable electricity, right? Um, technically and economically, that's totally possible to do in today's market. Um, but, you know, I think there's a healthy do- dose of skepticism there. And so, you know, a lot of it for us is kind of an education process with our customers, n- not only to say like this will work, but also to explain why it's going to work. Um, and, you know, in order to do that, a lot of times you have to be able to sort of get into the details and explain the fundamentals and, you know, how the system's going to work and things like that. Um, but I think that's that's the narrative that's probably been the biggest barrier to us deploying more systems is people are just kind of naturally skeptical about the role that renewable energy can play in these types of systems. And um, And look, I think we're making a lot of progress. That's changing a lot. Um, you know, I think for the first time in recent memory, there's adequate public support for, you know, public sector support for these types of projects. So that's making the decision easier for customers as well. Um, but again, you know, I think we're making steady progress. It's probably not as fast, you know, from an industry standpoint, it's not as fast as we'd like it to be, um, or we need it to be in order to sort of achieve our, our broader uh, climate action initiatives. But, you know, we're getting there. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk a little bit about like credibility and believability of the solution. And I'm sure with every new installation and, you know, customer that they can call and reference, uh, that helps. Uh, but I'm curious at the, at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about your experience in the military and DOD yeah. to me, that framing makes a ton of sense. Like it just very quickly adds credibility and sort of frames up how this solution came to be, at least for you guys. Um, because you can pick, you can picture that use case. And in some ways, you know, if you're the decision maker on this, it's like, well, I want what they've got too, you know? So I'm curious, does that, does that framing help you in conversation for them to kind of understand how you go, how you go about it and sort of bringing that experience with you to scale? Yeah. You know, look, I think, I think that it's definitely helpful. Right. And I think, you know, when you look at, you know, the biggest, microgrid customer in the world is the U.S. Department of Defense. Pretty much every military base, U.S. military base on planet Earth is being outfitted with a microgrid right now. Um, I think that's definitely helpful in, um, you know, convincing uh, private sector customers that this is the type of technology that uh, really adds a lot of value to operational resilience. You know, with that said, I think most of our customers also know that the way that the DOD thinks about money is a little bit different than the way private sector organizations think about money. And so I think we're at a place now where there's not a lot of skepticism that um, you can build one of these systems in a you know sustainable way that's going to improve your operational resilience. I do think there's a lot of skepticism that you can do that in a way that's going to benefit the bottom line. Um, especially on day one. 
And so, you know, I think that's a big part of the challenge right now is kind of translating the success that this industry has had in the public sector, um, specifically in the DOD, um, and convincing folks in the private sector that they don't have to make a big economic sacrifice in order to get similar capabilities. Um, and, and again, right, I think, you know, that's a solvable problem because the hard part, which is figuring out how to do that, is pretty much already solved. Um, now it's just a matter of sort of getting customers up that, you know, education learning curve um, so that they believe that that's the case. And uh, again, I think, you know, as we do more and more of these systems and we have more and more success and we get more and more momentum, that conversation becomes easier to have. But it's still tricky. Right. And, uh, you know, people these are long term investments for folks. The average contract we sign is like 15 years. Right. Um, and so, you know. People want to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's and make sure they understand what they're getting into. And we totally understand that and try to do the best job that we can, you know, helping them get to yes. How long had, I'm curious, how long had scale kind of existed in the original model before you got to the energy as a service uh, option? Yeah. Um, so I think when we started the company, um, we knew that that was where we were going. Right. Mm. And I think that was, you know, I we you know I mentioned earlier we started out building cogeneration systems, very similar dynamic there, right? Where the the key to being able to deploy those systems and and meet customers' expectations was really being able to uh, offer this through an energy as a service framework. Um, and the hard part for us when we started scale was that in order to do that, you need a lot of money. And so you know the first few years that we were doing this we were kind of jerry-rigging our projects so that we could offer that capability. Um, but we were doing that um, with a lot of our personal capital, you know, raising money from sort of friends and family to deploy into these projects. Um, it was pretty gnarly, right? It was hard to, you know, raise the money to be able to invest in these types of projects, yeah. especially on a one-off basis. Um, and so, you know, 2017 is really when we started fundraising. And uh, it was a very difficult process for us to go through. We were kind of one of the first folks in our industry um, that ended up doing this. Um, but ultimately, we found a, a capital solutions partner in Warburg Pincus that um, has been groundbreaking and game changing in the ability to go out and do these things. Um, and so, you know, now we have, uh, you know, a $500 million equity fund that we run. We just raised $225 million of non-recourse debt, which I could talk more about, which is pretty cool. Um, and we're able to do these projects, um, not only at scale, but also at a really attractive cost of capital. Um, and so, you know, I think that's been probably one of the hardest things that we've done as an organization, right? Is we kind of initially came at this from a very technical, you know, very technical angle um, where, you know, our core team was really a group of engineers and project managers that understood how to build these systems, but figuring out how to finance them and finance them efficiently has been a whole another thing. And, um, you know, as we've grown, we've been able to bring in a lot of really, really talented finance people. We have uh, a, what we call a capital solutions team that's run by a guy named Julian Torres, who spent the 20 years previous to scale running renewable energy practice at RBC. Um, so he like intimately understands, you know, efficient ways to sort of deploy capital into the space. And he's really done an amazing job alongside Ryan Goodman, our CEO, 
of, of building out that financial capability so that we can not only build these systems, but, you know, understand the requirements uh, for our customers up front. And, um, and yeah, you know, I think that's an evolution. We keep getting a little better at it, you know, every month, every day. Um, but that, that's been, that was definitely one of the biggest challenges of building this business is going out and, and getting that, you know, balance sheet to, to be able to go in and efficiently finance these types of deals. Yeah. I mean, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, you start with sort of the technical chops and credibility that you can deliver, which gives you the ability to get backers with the capital you need to provide a second solution to your client, to your clients, your customers, which is, Hey, not only technically can we do this, but you're trying to figure out if this is a good bet to play. It's a good investment to make. Yeah. Like, we'll figure that out for you. And we're good at that. And we can, we can make this easy for you and we'll take the risk, but we'll make that bet because we're great at it. You know, you don't have to be great at it. So it seems like you're, it does seem like you're offering basically two solutions to them, both the technical and the financial. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, I, th I think it's one of the hard things about building climate tech companies, especially climate tech companies on, on the hardware side of things, right? Where you're talking about really deploying hard assets is that being good technically isn't enough. That tends to be where most entrepreneurs start, right? Because it's very yeah. hard to, you know, do something innovative in the space if you don't have the technical chops to sort of figure it out in the first place. Um but, you know, that's necessary, but not sufficient. And I think around that, you know, core technical strength, you have to be able to build out not just financial capabilities, but contractual capabilities, right? So we have a commercial team uh, full of, you know, very talented lawyers who help us structure these deals and contract with our customers. Um, you have to be good at building, right? So we have a project management, what we call an execution team, Um that, you know, sort of walks with our customer from, you know, the time the contract signed through commissioning of the system. And then you have to be able to operate and maintain these systems post commissioning. Um, and that's a whole nother group that, that you know, we, we had to build out. Um, and so, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of climate tech companies start with, hey, we have a good technical team. And that's kind of the core of our business. And that can help us get maybe the first pilot project in the ground, the first few pilot projects in the ground. But then very quickly, you have to be able to build out those ancillary capabilities because ultimately that's what the market's for, right? People want to buy holistic energy solutions. And again, they want to do it in a very simple, hands-off way. Um, and so in order to get that, you, you, in order to get there, you have to be able to build out those complementary capabilities. Um, and that's been a real challenge for us, right? I think that's, that's something that, um, you know, ultimately... Um, we've made a huge amount of progress in sort of building out a vertically integrated business, um, but it definitely hasn't been easy. And it's forced us to think about a lot of these problems and challenges from viewpoints that aren't necessarily intuitive to, you know, at least the founding team. Right. Um, and so, you know, that that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges. And then you add into that that, you know, every energy business, whether it's, you know, a climate tech business or a traditional energy business. Um, every single one is a public-private partnership, right? So you're also talking about, you know, having to understand policy and regulatory um, developments at a very, very high level and being able to factor that into what you're doing today, but also what you're doing in the future. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you really need a really, really comprehensive skill set uh, internally to be able to navigate a lot of these challenges. 
Yeah, that's a really good point about the public-private partnership. I think that's, and your point is well taken. It we're in these conversations on the in this podcast, we're we're hearing more of these uh, solutions where they started as sort of let us make the case for why this is a good upfront uh, investment for you, and then they're gravit a lot of them, not everybody, but some are gravitating more to the we'll we will build this core competency ourselves, and we'll figure this out, and we'll. We'll handle all this. We'll try to make it as easy as possible to where you don't have to actually change too many of your habits or day-to-day routines or, you know, you don't even have to scale up on this. We'll try to do that for you. And I, I think that's the right direction. I think that's kind of what's critical for, for some of this stuff to be adopted uh, at the pace that we think it should. No, for sure. Right. right? I mean, I think, I, I think at the end of the day, right, it gets back to making it easy for, for customers. I mean, you know, look, I think when I first started doing this, whatever, 15 years ago, um, it was pretty common to come across customers who, let's just say, were like skeptical about climate science, right? And part of the reason they didn't want to do these projects is they didn't think they should be spending any of their time or company resources um, solving climate challenges, right? Or making their organizations, uh, you know, climate friendly uh, organizations. I don't think that really exists anymore, right? I mean, there are pockets, right? And they're certainly outliers, but generally speaking, I think pretty much every business um, has accepted climate science and is thinking about um, what they can do as an organization in order to be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. Um, with that said, that's typically not the first thing a CEO of one of our customer organizations thinks about when he wakes up in the morning. It's not the last thing he thinks about before he goes to sleep, right? And, um, you know, again, I'll just, just as a random example, right? I'll use, you know, grocery stores, um, which is, is one of the segments we work in. You know, I think this became really apparent during COVID, right? Where we were talking to a lot of our customers and they were telling us, look, like, yeah, this is important to us, but I have to figure out how to staff my store tomorrow and, you know, make sure everyone's following the right PPE uh, sort of stuff. And, you know, I, my supply chain's all messed up and I have to make sure there's bread on the shelves. And like, I got a lot of stuff going on. So if you need me to spend two hours a day with you in order to make this project happen, it's not going to happen. Right. And so the only way that this is going to happen is if you guys can kind of take this off my plate, you know, maybe we check in once every three, four weeks on, on project development stuff, but all this stuff has to be, you know, done by others. Right. And I think that's a very common, you know, situation that, that we find ourselves in um, where, you know, we have to do more and more of that behind the scenes work so the customer can really just, you know, check in on a regular basis, but doesn't have to be thinking about this all the time because they just don't have the bandwidth to do it. Right. Um, and that's definitely something I resonate with. Right. As, as someone who has been you know, trying to build and run a business for almost a decade now. Um, you know, people talk to me all the time about things that we could be doing better as a business. And a lot of times the reason we don't do them is not because we don't think they're a bad idea or a good idea. It's because we don't have the time and the bandwidth to focus on anything outside of like our core mission as an organization. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's the kind of perspective we try to bring um, to our customers to say, look, we get it. We understand you guys are very busy with just kind of doing your, you know, your core business activities. We're going to try to, you know, give you uh, some value here without taking a lot of your time. And that's ultimately, I think, the trade-off a lot of our customers evaluate us on the basis of, right, is 
we get it. We want to save money. We want operational resilience. We want to improve our carbon footprint. Um, but we just don't have the time to, to make this, you know, something that we have to work on every day. And so if you can do that all for us, then we're in business. If you can't, then we're not. Um, and so that's the challenge for us, right, is, you know, how, how do we deliver that value proposition um, with as few barriers to doing so as possible? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a sign of a maturation process where you've, you've got all of these things in place. And now you can really think about the customer experience because, you know, I mean, that can make or break it. And whether they recommend you to someone else was the time and effort or the pain that, you know, was it easy for me or was it painful for me? So that's for no, sure for, a next for, step, I think, right? No, for sure. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of times when I talk to, you know, the next generation of climate tech founders or just, you know, technology entrepreneurs in general, um, you know, I think sometimes we overcomplicate this stuff, right? And the message that, you know, I give to a lot of them is the one way I know how to build a good business is just keep making your customers happy, right? So get your first customer, make that customer really, really happy. That customer is going to be a reference for the next three customers, make those three customers really, really happy. Um, and now you got something, right? And so I think that's really something that, you know, I'm really proud of at scale is we think about all of this stuff in a very customer centric way um, where, you know, again, there's a lot of details and there's a lot of nuances and there's a lot of, you know, trends with, with different things. But at the end of the day, you know, if we have a customer base of happy customers, um, that one makes it easier for us to onboard the next customer. Cause I think one of the most, one of the best sales tools we have in our kit right now is our reference customers, right? Our customers like us. They're willing to spend, you know, 10, 15 minutes on the phone with a new potential customer to say, Hey, here's what my experience was like. And, you know, these guys are for real, whatever the case might be. Um, and that really helps us get, get, get new business. But, you know, it also, I think really helps internally with morale, right? Because, at the end of the day, people want to work at a company that is delivering a service or, you know, a technology suite that, that customers appreciate and they like and is beneficial and is helping them. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of times uh, we uh, as sort of the entrepreneurial community get really focused on a lot of, you know, the shiny bells and whistles. At the end of the day, if you just think about this in terms of, you know, let's make cu our customers happy and see what happens. That's usually a pretty good recipe for building a business, in my experience, at least. Absolutely. I think happy customers is one of the best recruitment tools because people, it, it makes for an enjoyable experience for everybody on the yeah. inside. You you just mentioned that you've passed some of your hard fought learnings on to other founders uh, in this space, and you've been at it for you know about a decade, give or take. What is some of the, when you're a founder, you're kind of a magnet for advice. Um, has there been some well-intentioned, but advice that was just really not great for you? Like you're like, probably good advice for someone else, but not for us. Is there anything that pops in your mind where someone's like, you know, you guys should really do this. And you're like, respectfully, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think it happens all the time. Right. And, um, and look, I think, I think to begin with, right. Um, this company, you know, scale microgrids wouldn't exist if it wasn't for a lot of, you know, what's typically referred to as clean tech 1.0 entrepreneurs who took time out of their day to kind of mentor specifically Ryan and I, but also our leadership team as, as we kind of grew as an organization. Um, and look, I think it's one of the coolest things about being part of this industry, right, is people are willing to pay it back. Um, 
you know, I think everyone in, at the at least at the beginning of this journey gets into this for the right reasons, right? And and we're trying to solve what's likely the biggest problem that humanity has uh, certainly moving forward. Um, and we're all trying to build a, you know, a better world um, and leave a better world than we found for, you know, our kids and grandkids. Um, and we all know that none of us are going to do it alone, right? Um, when you actually sort of understand what's happening in climate, what you realize is that as much progress as we're making and as fast as this industry is growing and for all our successes, um, you know, Greenhouse gas emissions went up in the United States last year. Um, they went up globally last year. Um, and so not only are we not making enough progress, we're not even technically heading in the right direction. Um, and so what that means is we need uh, just like a wave of new uh, entrepreneurs and, and um, just, you know, talented, smart people to come into this industry and help us ramp this up uh, a lot faster than we're currently ramping it up. And so, yeah, look, I think, uh, you know, the the I think a lot of people in this industry are willing to sort of go out of their way to pay it back and take time with the next generation of folks and give them advice and, um, you know, mentor them and things like that. Um, to the second part of your question. Um, yeah, look, I think one of the most challenging things for me and I, I you know, I think um, a lot of the folks on our on our leadership team has been at some point. um we kind of got into uncharted territory, right? Where we're doing things now that haven't really been done before. And so you can touch, you know, you can touch base with, you know, mentors and, uh, you know, other smart people in the industry to sort of bat ideas around and get high level feedback and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, no one really understands the details of the situation we're in as well as the folks internally. Um, and so it takes, you know, today it takes a lot of self-confidence to be able to make these decisions. And sometimes it's terrifying, right? Where you're sitting in a room with, you know, five or six other people trying to make a decision about what we're going to do as an organization. Um, and you know that no one outside that room can come in and, and give you the silver bullet or, you know, give you the answer to the problem. Um, so look, you know, I think our recipe for, for doing that was first to acknowledge it, right? That uh, you know, as as gracious as people have been with with sort of helping us build our business, at the end of the day, this is going to come down to the decisions we make. Um, and then knowing that, right, that means that we have to surround ourselves with the most talented people possible. And, you know, some of that requires setting egos aside, right? Um, you know, I used to consider myself, uh, you know, one of the best project modelers in our company, right? I am no longer that. Right. Uh, I, I am not in the top quartile of folks in our company that know how to build project models now. Right. I used to consider myself pretty talented on the finance side relative to the folks that are doing this in our organization today. I am not. Um, and so, you know, I think I think you have to have that perspective that, you know, this isn't, you know, a one man band. Right. This isn't like something I'm going to solve or Ryan's going to solve. Um, no one person. Uh, can can sort of build out the comprehensive set of capabilities you need to really make an organization like this work. And no one from the outside is coming in to help us. And so, uh, you know, I think ultimately, um, you know, we've built a team that I think is remarkable. And um, at the end of the day, I think we've built a culture where, you know, everyone sits down at a table, they feel free to, you know, communicate their opinions on whatever the topic of the day is. 
And then we all have a lot of trust and, you know, ultimately Ryan and our board to make decisions. And when they make decisions, we go. Um, and so I think, you know, if you can sort of recognize that you need to build a really robust talent pipeline internally, you need to create a culture where everyone's, you know, comfortable, um, you know, communicating and, and giving their opinions. And then ultimately everyone has trust in sort of the decision maker to say, okay, look, we can't spend another six days talking about this. Like, here's what we're going to do. Let's go. I think that's about the best you can do. And then you also have to have some grace, right? Um, you're going to make mistakes. We make mistakes all the time. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, ultimately that's part of the process and, and you have to, you know, have some tolerance for that built in. Um, and you just kind of keep getting better and better at doing this. And as you have more and more success, that gives you more and more confidence to make the next big decision. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great mile marker that you talked about of, I think whenever one of the founders realizes they're not one of the best at that thing that they were pretty good at, that's like a really, that's a great success marker. You're doing a great job with the talent and the culture. If you're not the best, I mean, my gosh, if you're the best at a couple of things and you're a few years into it, like it's not probably not going well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And look, I think, I think that's, um, you know, it's it, it, de definitely, you know, building this company has been the most humbling experience of my life, right? Because, um, you know, look, I, I would be lying to you. I think one of the reasons we started this company is that, you know, Ryan, Howard, and I, which was kind of the founding, you know, the three founders of the company, um, we were probably a little too confident in our skill set when we started the company. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a bad thing or not, because I think if we were realistic, we probably wouldn't, wouldn't have started wouldn't in have the started. first place. Yeah. Um, but, but, but look, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think that, you know, we were able to be, you know, pretty humble about our shortcomings and, um, you know, we had an environment where we could talk about that stuff openly and honestly, without a lot of judgment. Um, and that's what led us to hire a lot of the, the really talented people we have in the organization now who are making wonderful decisions that are really helping us grow and, and profit as an enterprise. And so, you know, look, I think, you you know, that's the trick to sort of entrepreneurship, certainly in the clean tech space, right, is you have to be a little overconfident, a little crazy to get started. But then you got to pretty quickly pivot um, to being a little bit more humble and realizing that, you know, you need a lot of help in order to build a good organization that lasts in this industry. Oh, yeah. The process will humble you no matter what. The trick is it, to be resilient for sure, enough. For sure. You keep, you keep at it. When you look forward a year, five years, 10 years, what have you, what do you see as next for the industry, for scale? Like, what do you see on the horizon that uh, maybe others see, maybe they don't see? Yeah. Um, so look, I think the exciting part of being part of scale microgrids, but part of the distributed energy industry more broadly is there's no ceiling um, in terms of what we can accomplish. Um, now, look, ultimately, and I will tell you, this is not necessarily the view of our company, but this is definitely, you know, kind of my view. Um, you know, I think we're heading in the direction of building an electric grid that is primarily distributed, right? Um, where we're not going to have, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles of transmission lines and distribution lines that connect big power plants to loads, but rather pretty much every building in the country is going to make its own power. And then we'll have a network that allows us to sort of peer share. Um, but that's kind of like a hundred year vision. Right. Um, but I think if you think about it in sort of that context and you see where we're going, um, 
that allows you to, um, you know, take some bigger risks today, right? Because I think ultimately, you know, we don't really see a cap on where this can go, right? We think about our market size or the addressable market for what we do as being uh, much, much, much bigger than anything we're ever going to be able to supply, right? Um, and so from a demand standpoint, we kind of looked at look at it as an uncapped market. And what that means is what we're really, really focused on is build, uh, building out our deployment capabilities, right? Knowing that, you know, if we can get, you know, incrementally better and better and better at building these systems and build more and more and more and more, demand is going to be there. Um, and again, you have to have, you know, a certain perspective to believe in that thesis. There are really, really smart people in the energy industry that will tell you that I'm nuts. Um, and that's like a crazy way to think about it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think ultimately, like if you shoot for the stars and you miss, you land on a cloud. Right. And that, that's kind of the perspective we've had as a business. So we're very, very focused right now on, you know, building out our capabilities, right? Um, you know, building, you know, we have sort of some 2025 objectives where we want to be from an ability to deploy systems. We have some 2030 targets. We don't really think past then, right? But I think, you know, our general perspective is you kind of put one foot in front of the other, you get a little better at this every day. Um, and, and we're very, very confident demand is going to be there in the long run. Um, and so that allows us to be maybe a little bit more aggressive than some of our other peer companies in the space today. That's cool. If people wanted to learn more about Scale Microgrids, where would you point them? Yeah, so um, scalemicrogrids.com is is the website. Uh, we have a lot of good information on there. You can sort of see some of the projects we work on and learn more about the organization. Um, we have a very active uh, group of employees on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, so our social media star is, uh, the director of our project analysis team. His name is Duncan Campbell. So he's the best Twitter follow. And if you follow him on Twitter, you'll learn a lot. Um, both things that I want him to say and things I don't want him to say, uh, you'll, you'll learn, learn a lot about our company on Twitter. Um, and then, yeah, you know, look, I think, uh, for, for folks that are interested in this type of stuff, um, you can get in contact with, you know, kind of whoever you want on our team, um, through, through our website. Uh, you know, we're still, we're still at the point where we love, uh, talking to people and we generally have enough time to, to talk to people that want to talk to us. So if you have any particular, you know, line of questioning or you want to learn more, reach out and we'll get back to you. That's awesome. Tim, this is good stuff. I appreciate you taking a little time to share where, where the journey has taken you so far and where it's going to take you moving forward. No, Justin, thanks so much, man. I had a great time and, uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you. <laughs>